AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I don't know where I'm gonna go when the volcano blow. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkabon. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, yeah, today we're going to talk <laughs> yes, about Lauren? something terrifying: <laughs> super volcanoes. Yeah. No, What's hold scarier on. scarier than a volcano? A super volcano. Yeah. Uh, now, is a super volcano bigger than an ultra volcano or less? Uh, no, it has a cape on it and yeah. can fly. And during the day, it's a mild-mannered reporter for a, a local newspaper. You know, people want to know. I, I feel like we've gotten this question before. Yeah. Is a super volcano going to erupt and end the world? Or at least wipe out a huge percentage of species on Earth? And I can understand that fear because I actually... This uh, this idea sort of entered my mind and infected me with strange fears years ago, back when I read a book 
Uh, I read a book called The Road by Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> oh, what okay. a what a cheerful book that was. It is too. it is a very good book, but it is not a cheerful book. No, it's grim. <laughs> it's sort of a. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it. You you know, go read it if you're interested. But it's a story of a journey in a very desolate post-apocalyptic landscape. Um, and I was wondering after I read the book, huh? I wonder what it is that the author had in mind because uh, he never said what it is that happened that sort of ruined the earth uh, yeah in for frequently world. in these post-apocalyptic medias uh medias yes that is totally the way that you pluralize that word um you no one ever tells you exactly what happened or if they do it gets cheesy and i think that's why the rest of them don't sure uh and so the question is i'm wondering here like was this supposed to be like a nuclear war or was it supposed to be like an asteroid impact some kind um, of a natural, purely earthbound event. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't know, but it describes a scenario where, like, all the plant life is dead, and it's very cold, and the sky is always gray and dark, and there's ash everywhere. And and I wondered until I read somewhere on the internet, I don't remember where it was now, this was years ago, but I read a blog post with somebody having a theory that said, oh, well, obviously... What has happened in this scenario is that it was an eruption of the Yellowstone supervolcano. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. From, from the, as you read the book, if you think of it in those terms, the conditions that are mentioned in the book seem to go pretty well with something like that. Yeah. I, I think it's a very good possibility. I mean, it, it's also possible that the author didn't actually have any one particular thing in mind, but. And ultimately, we'll, we'll it, never doesn't, know. it doesn't really matter. That's not the point of the story, but it is interesting to think that that could have been the triggering event. Uh, sure. A caveat though. Uh, it's possible that it is the triggering event in this story. It is extremely unlikely that this will actually happen. Certainly within our lifetime. Yeah, we want to be clear that we're going to talk about some stuff that is really scary. I mean, really terrifying, you know, and it's it's it is legitimately scary stuff. However, we also want to point out that there is no reason to believe that there is any oncoming eruption, even within like the the century or, or several centuries that uh, the likelihood of such an eruption happening in any any given year is one in seven hundred thousand. That was one of the the figures I saw. So uh, let's start off by saying we're going to talk about what could happen with a supervolcano eruption, but let's also acknowledge there's no indication such a thing is going to happen anytime soon. Yes, ima- imagine big friendly letters on your screen that just say "Don't panic." Yes, <laughs> yes, it, it definitely makes me feel better. And now I want some something that is almost but not quite exactly unlike tea. I mean, <laughs> raining, burning ash and lava everywhere. But don't panic. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> uh, because it's because, it, yeah, like, like he said, it's true. I think many, um, many people who have explored the possibility of a supervolcano eruption, mm. especially specifically the eruption of the Yellowstone supervolcano right. in, in North America, have sort of pursued it with a kind of like, you know, playing up the drama and like, oh, this this looming danger. We we do want to say at the beginning, it's not very likely. Yeah, it's it's calm yourself down. It's kind of the similar uh, look at what would happen with the doomsday scenario of an enormous asteroid heading toward mm-hmm. Earth. It's one of those things that, you know, it's important to know what you're up against in the unlikely event that it happens, because 
if you play the long game, and we're not talking about your lifetime or the lifetime of the next like five generations, I'm talking over the span of thousands of years. If you play the long game, it will happen mm-hmm. eventually. But the the key word there is eventually, and the important thing is to say, all right, well, what can we do with this knowledge? Mm-hmm. And we will talk about what some serious science researchers are are planning for in in case this happens to happen, um, because we'll have some warning, y'all. But in the meanwhile, let us define what a supervolcano is. Right. We're not going to get to what to put in your volcano kit yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, what is a supervolcano? Okay, well, I, I was curious about this, so I looked it up, and it seems to me that uh, one of the ways that scientists measure the magnitude of a volcanic eruption is the Volcanic Explosivity Index, or the VEI. Which Explosivity to me, index. That's so great. It sounds to me like a tenacious D album. <laughs> yeah, the the VEI. So it's a numerical score for how bad it done blowed up. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, ranging from zero to eight, and it's assigned based on a number of criteria like uh, the volume in cubic kilometers of ejected pyroclastic materials, so all the hot stuff that comes out of the volcano in cubic kilometers. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's. Wow. Yeah. Right. Well, but in, in some of these scores, it's like point zero zero one cubic kilometers. And that's somewhat more comforting, I suppose. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, how high the eruption column reaches into the sky, mm-hmm. and then also there are like subjective qualities about the character of the eruption. Right. Like, uh, like if it was brassy or <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know. That's uh, a classy eruption, right? There. <laughs> that's right. <yeah. laughs> so it, it's kind of similar to the Richter scale, actually. It's similar to the Richter scale that we use for earthquakes. Mm-hmm. Like the Richter scale, uh, at the upper levels of the VEI, at least, it's uh, the the scores are logarithmic, meaning that it, uh, an increase in one number to the next is actually an increase in an order of magnitude. So, so from one number to the next could be a dramatic increase in the actual output of the volcano. Right. So I'm going to give you the examples of those upper levels. So a five on the VEI is uh, it corresponds to one cubic kilometer. Uh, that's a little bit less than a quarter of a cubic mile. Yeah. Of of ejected of what what's called ejecta all right. the stuff that comes ejecta. out and then settles down on the ground. All sure. these words are great. Yeah. yeah. So the so the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens mm. was a five, and that that was a big eruption. Yeah, that yeah. was huge. Yeah. yeah, but it was a five. Okay. A, a Wait, six. Who here was alive in that during the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption? Just me. Okay, let's keep going. I wasn't, but I've seen pictures. Yeah. Come on. on. A a six corresponds to 10 cubic kilometers. Okay. Uh, That's about 2.4 cubic miles. Yeah. A seven corresponds to about 100 cubic kilometers. Uh, 24 cubic miles. You can see how the math is working out here. Yeah. And an eight corresponds to 1,000 cubic kilometers. 240 cubic miles. Thereabouts. Okay, so one way of defining a supervolcano is that it's a volcanic eruption that's greater than an eight on the VEI. So Yikes. It, well, an eight or greater. So, so a thousand okay. cubic kilometers or more. Yeah, which translates to about 240, sometimes people say about 250 cubic miles yeah. of ejecta. All this hot stuff that comes up out of the volcano and then settles down. On the Earth uh, now, people don't people don't always use the VEI because it has some limitations. Like it, it can't measure equally across all time scales, like way back into the past. 
Um, and it doesn't measure the release of volcanic gas, which can actually be one of the most important effects of oh, a volcanic sure. yeah, eruption. Oh, sure. It can have a very long-lasting uh, climate effect. Yeah. Um, so a less complicated metric is just that level, that volume of ejecta we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So a volume greater than a thousand cubic kilometers of stuff. Uh, but a thousand cubic kilometers, I'm having trouble picturing in my head. Uh, give me, give me a concept here. <laughs> I, I tried to come up with a couple. Uh, it's a lot. So it doesn't really <laughs> compare much to like, you know, this many buckets. It's. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the Comet 67P and then a couple of Russian names? The, it's the one that the ESA Rosetta mission yes. landed on. Oh, okay, yes. okay, sure. Okay, so yeah, you remember that Comet, and then that was a wonderful, emotional time seeing that lander set down on the Comet. It was beautiful. But now imagine, because that Comet had a volume of 21.4 cubic kilometers. Mm-hmm. So the smallest possible supervolcano eruption ejects about 47 of this comet's worth of pyroclastic material. So that comet, 47 times burning hot, raining down on the Earth. So we need 47 probes to land? I I think I might have taken the analogy. It would be bad times. It (laughs) would be bad. Yeah, another comparison. Uh, 1,000 cubic kilometers is more than the volume of Lake Titicaca in Peru. Mm-hmm. If you want to look up this lake on the Internet, look up a picture. It's big. Yeah. Uh, 1,000 <laughs> cubic kilometers is also more than double the volume of Lake Erie in North America, which is 483 cubic kilometers. Right. This, this is huge. And these really big eruptions – get bigger than a thousand cubic kilometers but so we should we should put it in perspective how often these things happen right large eruptions are much less common than small eruptions mm-hmm. uh, eruptions that register low on the vei scale happen all the time there's one happening right now they're they're always going on uh the middle of the scale gets pretty rare and the top of the scale is very rare. In fact, there have been exactly zero supervolcano eruptions in recorded human history. Uh, there have been no supervolcano eruptions in the entire Holocene epoch. Uh, but there have been supervolcano eruptions since humans have existed. And one example that I thought would be good to talk about would be the Toba supervolcano eruption about 74,000 years ago. Uh, yeah, that happened on the island of Sumatra in present-day Indonesia. And it included at least 2,800 cubic kilometers of stuff. That's about 672 cubic miles. I did not do the calculation for how many comets that is, but that's a <laughs> lot of comets. <laughs> I did a calculation of my own uh, in, in order to put it into something vaguely understandable and yet not helpful at all. Uh, there are some 1.1 trillion gallons in a single cubic mile. So the stuff that came out of this volcano equaled about 740 trillion gallons. Wow. <laughs> I, sure, it's a bunch. Um, like, like billions of tons of hot ash and rock flowing onto the surrounding area, plus hundreds of cubic kilometers of, of ash and gases spewing into the atmosphere. Mm. Um, it was so violent that the mountain containing the volcano collapsed, uh, leaving what's now Lake Toba, which is the largest volcanic lake in the world with a surface area of some 1,130 square kilometers or 440 square miles and a depth of about 500 meters or uh, 1,600 feet. That's just 50 square miles less than the area of Los Angeles. 
for comparison. Wow. That, that's uh, the lake leftover. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the crater. Yeah. <laughs> uh, researchers out of Oxford University think that the the gases that it put out circled the entire globe and that the ash covered a span from the Arabian Sea to the east um, across the entire Indian subcontinent and to into the South China Sea in the west um, and then uh, some like 3,000 kilometers south into the Indian Ocean. Um, and that's just matter that scientists have collected and confirmed as being from this eruption so far. So obviously an eruption like that is not just a negative local event. Like it's not just that you'd worry about getting caught in the falling ash and hot rock. Which would right. suck, but no, but no, this is, I mean, unless you consider a local event a continent. Yeah. Um, in that case, sure, totes local. Um, <laughs> but but no, th- this was this was big. Um, and the, the resultant cooling effect as everything that spewed out started reflecting sunlight caused global weather effects and, and may have, in fact, influenced the Earth's slip into a particularly cold era of the Ice Ages. Yeah. In fact, uh, I read about a theory that this event may have had something to do with human genetic history. Uh, yeah. C- combined with climate data, uh, some genetic data that researchers have been looking into from humans around the time might indicate a huge dip in the number of human people who were reproducing around the time of Toba's eruption. Uh, like, this eruption might have nearly driven us to extinction. Wow. Uh, well, that that's scary and crazy and kind of cool and amazing, but it's also, like, not the only time in history that volcanic activity would be associated with Extinction. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Well, and I also do want to point out that there were a lot fewer humans, like Homo sapiens, running around right. seventy four thousand years ago than there sure. are, right. say, today. We're in a kind of a vulnerable position, anyway. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, when you talk about volcanic activity being associated with mass extinctions, every single mass extinction has been correlated with volcanic activity. Not necessarily that. The volcanic ca- activity directly caused the mass extinction, but likely contributed to it. it certainly yeah. didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you're talking about major volcanic activity, help is not something that would immediately spring to mind. You might be crying it, but that's not what's <laughs> – it's certainly not <laughs> yeah, aiding unless, the planet as far as life goes. Unless you're a mythical flaming salamander, you're probably right. not excited. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, first we should say, I mean, what is a mass extinction? A, a mass extinction is basically a period – um, when a huge number of species on Earth completely die out. Right. All around the same time. And this doesn't actually mean it's uh, like all at once, like they all died on the same day. This can happen <laughs> over over many, many years, you know, like thousands of years or even millions of years on the geologic scale. Yeah. But it, looking back across geological history, you can see these happening uh, very, very suddenly. There's sort of like spikes in die-offs. Yeah, yeah. On a geologic scale, it's sudden. For if you were living through it, it would, it could be an entire, it could be multiple lifetimes, multiple, multiple lifetimes. So, uh, in other words, we're not going to say like the dinosaurs died out on a Thursday. That's not what we mean when well, we talk about them. Well, some of them did, but yeah, but not all of them all <laughs> on one Thursday. I would um, argue that Thursdays had not been invented yet. <laughs> So at any rate, you uh, don't know raptors' lives. <laughs> they might have been very fond of Thursday. They did not call them Thursdays. They called them. <laughs> Boy, those were the days. At any rate, uh, so at the end of the Triassic period, 
about half of the species living on Earth, both on land and in water, went extinct. And scientists found that the cause was likely the massive eruptions that had produced enough lava to bury the entire United States under 300 feet of it. Um, if if you had added all all the ejecta up, that's mm-hmm. how much it would have. Uh, you know, you could have covered uh, the Earth with three or the United States rather with three hundred feet of lava. Uh, and this happened around the time that Pangaea, which is the the supercontinent, was breaking apart. So this was all due to tectonic forces, and the eruptions themselves weren't a single event. It wasn't like there was one massive super volcanic eruption after which there was this massive amount of lava. It was a series of eruptions that took course over 600,000 years. So again, not one of those, you know, singular events. We as humans often think about things as like a singular event for one, it makes it a lot easier to understand and talk Mm -hmm. about. And, uh, and two, our lives are very short compared to a geological time scale. Uh, but in truth, it happened over hundreds of thousands of years. Now, however, that was the uh, event that would lead to the opportunity for dinosaurs to spring into certain niches <laughs> and, and take over and become the dominant life force for quite some time. And then the uh, Cretaceous uh, tertiary boundary, the KT boundary, that's when we talk about how the dinosaurs all went extinct. So uh, the the biggest popular theory for a very long time was that an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs. There was an asteroid impact which caused global climate change and that wiped out the dinosaurs. And that's still very much part of the prevailing theory. However, uh, there's also a lot of support, growing support in a, in a large consensus building for the idea that volcanic eruptions had already – created the situation where the asteroid was kind of the finishing blow. Uh, so mm-hmm. it wasn't that the asteroid was solely responsible for dinosaurs going extinct. It was that conditions were prime for that to happen because of the volcanic activity that had already taken place uh, largely in India. So, uh, yes, it, these these volcanic eruptions have been correlated with uh, with extinctions, but correlation and causation are two different things. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than just pointing at a single source and saying, this is what caused everything to die out. I think a lot of us, maybe I'm speaking for everybody else. When I think of volcanoes, I often think of just the immediate uh, view of, you know, the idea of lava streaming down the side mm-hmm. of the mountain. And that, that to me is, it represents the, the immediate danger. Uh, but as we've discussed, that's just one of the many things that you have to worry about oh, with a volcanic yeah. eruption. Yeah, on, on a global level, it's it's much more likely to, I mean, the same way that a nuclear blast will kill a certain number of people in a certain area, yeah. but the fallout from that blast is a lot more wide-reaching. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a very good uh, analogy. So we wanted to talk specifically about the Yellowstone supervolcano. Uh, this yeah. was this is was it going to kill us? <laughs> I mean, it'll, it'll eventually erupt. Uh, it'll, there'll, there will eventually be a super eruption. Whether that eventually is like any time within the next few thousand years, who can say? Uh, it's not likely. And if it does happen, we will likely have lots of, uh, warning signs before it happens. But, um, the reason why uh, we are, we're specifically focusing on this is one, we are based in the United States. So it's one of those things that, um, is easy for us to focus on. Two, the reason why I even suggested we do super volcanoes is there was a, a mini series, uh, like kind of made for TV movie thing that came out in the mid 2000s called Super Volcano. And it recently got added to Netflix. 
and I watched it. <laughs> and it specifically deals with the Yellowstone supervolcano. And it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the research they did for that is essentially correct, uh, or at least was correct based upon what was known in the mid-2000s. So it's not like they went crazy with the research. I will say that um, it's a lot like the articles that we've read where you get – all the horrible things that will happen, and then a sentence at the end saying, "This probably won't happen." <laughs> like, it felt like it was an entire mini series that was made that way. But at any rate, um, the supervolcano at Yellowstone has had three major eruptions. I mean, there have been lots of different smaller eruptions, but three major ones. Two of which meet the supervolcano criteria of the 240 or 250 cubic miles of ejecta. So the first happened 2.1 million years ago. So quite some time ago, the second 1.2 million years ago, and the more recent one, 640,000 years ago. So not in recent memory, certainly. Uh, and that first eruption was about 6,000 times the size of the Mount St. Helens eruption that we talked about earlier. Uh, and the latest one caused a collapse of the eruption area. This is actually fairly common where a, a large volcanic eruption, you typically have a, a chamber beneath the volcanic area that is containing the, the molten material. And when it empties out, often the weight of both the, the, uh, surface above it and the ejecta causes a collapse. So the latest eruption caused a collapse of this, of this eruption area, which created a sunken crater called a caldera. And it's big. It's 1,500 square miles in area, which is larger than the state of Rhode Island. Huh. You could fit Rhode Island into the <laughs> volcanic caldera of the Yellowstone supervolcano. Uh, I don't recommend you do it because everyone in Rhode Island would wonder why you pulled them off the eastern seaboard. They would be pretty mad, yeah, I imagine. They would no longer be called an island unless they're an island in the caldera. I mean, they're not technically an island anyway, but you'd have even less reason then. At any rate, uh, <laughs> so under this park, under the Yellowstone Park, is the magma chamber. Now, we've known about the the, the initial magma chamber for a really long time. Um, and it's uh, essentially between three and nine miles beneath the surface. It depends upon where you are at any point along the, the area where the magma chamber exists. And it's tough to map these things out. You know, we can't really dig down to see them. Um, but if you were to empty out this chamber, you could fill the 1,000 cubic mile Grand Canyon 2.5 times Oof. with the stuff inside it. So two and a half times the amount that you would need to completely seal that crack, uh, known as the Grand Canyon. But that's just the beginning because in <laughs> April 2015 – Scientists found a second magma chamber underneath the first one. And, and, well, and this actually answered a lot of questions because they were wondering how was the magma connecting to the chamber? Like where would, obviously it's coming from somewhere around in the mantle region of Earth. And there's some sort of plume that has to connect the mantle to that magma chamber. Otherwise you wouldn't have it there, right? But they weren't sure how that was working. And now they found that there is a larger magma chamber underneath the first one. And it's it's kind of the the way station between the mantle and uh, the upper magma chamber. So this one's bigger. It's about four point four times larger than the one that's the the shallow magma chamber, and uh, it's somewhere between twelve and twenty eight miles beneath the surface. Again, depending upon where you're at, and uh, it has enough magma to fill the Grand Canyon more than eleven times. What what I'm picturing here is is 
Thor filling up the Grand Canyon with magma and then drinking it down and then shoving it off the table, the Grand Canyon right off the table and going, another! <laughs> Boy, Thor is a jerk. And uh, it, there's a whole storyline about it, actually. So anyway, um, so one thing that scientists do point out, and it is important to think on because, uh, you know, when I hear magma chamber, I think like big gooey chamber filled with with lava goo. Or magma, really, because lava, once it, it, it is exposed to the atmosphere. Yes. But that's not exactly what we're lo- looking at. Only about 9% of the material in the upper magma chamber is actually molten rock. And most of it is stored inside of spongy, very hot rock. So you've got this spongy hot rock, and, and inside you can think of it as having porous cavities that have a gooey molten lo- a magma center. So, uh, yeah, that's great news. That's <laughs> but only nine, only nine percent of it is actually the molten rock, is what I'm saying. <clears throat> and the lower chamber has an even lower um, percentage of molten rock. Two percent of the material in that is molten rock. It okay. sounds like a chocolate lava cake, but but real, actual lava, yeah. actual or, lava. Yeah, no, or, that's that's very magma. comforting. Yeah, magma. It instead would be of, lava once it gets to the surface. Instead of all completely molten rock, uh, there's some giant chunks of of rock that contain molten stuff that will <laughs> fly at your at, at your face and bust open and if it makes you feel better lauren you probably wouldn't be live long enough to notice that <laughs> tell, tell me about magma funnels all right so <laughs> so magma funnels this this is the this is the plume i was talking about the oh, way okay, that okay. the way this magma gets funneled up from the the mantle or perhaps even lower down uh, so uh, this is where we start getting into a lot of, of estimations. I mean, we were already talking about estimations of three to nine miles below the surface or 12 to 28 miles below the surface. And a lot of this is coming to us from seismic information that's been picked up over time. And we can learn a lot through seismic data. We've talked about how sound travels at different speeds through different media. And by measuring that, those differences, that's how we can figure out a lot of what is the composition underneath Yellowstone Park. So... The Yellowstone hotspot plume is what connects the magma uh, in the uh, in the lower chamber to the mantle, uh, and then the lower chamber is att- attached to the upper chamber. Um, and remember, the lower one's the bigger one. So the hotspot plume is probably around 40 miles beneath the surface and extends downward to a depth of about 440 miles in the Earth's mantle, although some estimates suggest that perhaps it goes all the way down to the Earth's core, so 1,800 miles. Um, But it depends upon which model you're looking at. So one of the implications of this larger magma chamber that was discovered in April of 2015 is that it could potentially feed magma into the upper chamber in the event of a large-scale eruption. So in other words, imagine that you have a major eruption where that upper magma chamber, which can fill the Grand Canyon two and a half times over, erupts, then gets refilled by the lower chamber, erupts again, then gets refilled uh-huh. by the lower – because the lower chamber is 4.4 times the size of the upper chamber. Wow, yeah. So you could essentially multiply that number by four and say that that, like, super worst case scenario. And keep in mind, these eruptions can take place over the course of a very long time, like months. We're not talking about a, again, we're not talking about a single explosive event. An eruption can take place over a very long amount of time. Now, is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? No. No. So I want to mention that again. It is not likely to happen. But just for fun. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's talk about what a super volcanic eruption would look like. Is, is this fun? Is fun what we're having? I'm using the word fun ironically. <laughs> Uh, so the BBC reported that in the event of a super eruption, 90% of people living within a thousand kilometers of the blast area could die from the eruptions straight away. I just looked up on Google Maps if we're within a thousand kilometers. Right <laughs> we are well outside of a thousand kilometers. Of, uh, yeah. So no problem. Yeah, because yeah. we're, we're in Atlanta. That's really far away from Yellowstone National Park. Uh, yeah, no, we are well outside of a thousand kilometers, but uh, not to gloat or anything. No. Yeah, yeah, and 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 a note here about this particular estimation: uh, Toba seems to have been uninhabited by humans and other species of the Homo genus at the time of the eruption. So we don't have any kind of archaeological record of how a supervolcanic eruption would directly affect even a proto civilization. Right. Uh, so we're guessing. This is yeah. This is this is a guess. And again, it's it's BBC researchers who came up with this number, sure. and they I'm sure they consulted with lots of geologists. Educated but, guess, I'm positive. Right, but this does not come from the U.S. Geological Survey, which is the the group that's in charge of uh, of actually looking into this here mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. Uh, say, what do they have to say about this? Well, uh, so they talk more about the ash dispersal. Like they don't spend a whole lot of time talking about the stuff that would happen in the immediately immediate blast zone. But, uh, you know, they actually said that they ran computer models to see where ash would disperse around, uh, Yellowstone in the event of a super volcano eruption. And the reason they said they did it was they got tired of telling people, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> people would ask, like, like, what would happen if the super volcano erupted? We don't know. <laughs> like, after a while, they said we should probably find we'll out. Find yeah, we'll do a couple of models. Happen, right? But we'll look. Yeah, it, I can't imagine what it must be like to work there and get these kind of uh, calls from various forms of the media asking. Because, I mean, it is a sensationalized story in many ways, and you could say, well. It's important because it has the potential to impact the entire world and and it will happen at some point. So therefore, isn't it newsworthy? <laughs> the geologists are meanwhile like, I need a drink. So um, <laughs> in 2014, they ran a computer model to look at this and they looked at different versions of the model, like one where – an eruption would last for maybe a day or two and one where it would last for a week and one where it would last for an entire month. And they, they laid out a map of where the ash would disperse. And the good news is their models found that the ash accumulation would actually be, quote, far less, end quote, than that predicted by numerous doomsday scenarios. Oh, oh. Great. But still enough to kill just about everybody in the United States eventually. Oh. Um, so they, they found that ash from super eruptions gets distributed in a different way than ash from normal eruptions. And that's because a super eruption creates an umbrella cloud capable of pushing ash more than a thousand kilometers upwind. So against the wind. Wow. Uh, so typically in a volcanic eruption, you would see the ash dispersal look like a fan. Uh, extending from the volcano downwind. That's what it would normally look like. But with super volcanoes, it looks more like a bullseye with the volcano in the center. A hmm. uh, little bit of an off-center bullseye. It's still going to have more dispersal downwind than upwind, but the volcano will still be closer to the center than at one end of the map. Uh, and... They said that a layer of ash 10 centimeters thick or more could cover the area within 500 miles of the eruption. Uh, 
And even in more distant regions, like, say, New York City, you would still get a dusting of volcanic ash. And this is serious stuff, guys. Yeah. The, the ash is not like the ash you would find in your fireplace. Uh, volcanic ash has tiny rocks in it. Um, and these tiny rocks can do a huge amount of damage. So <laughs> let's talk about some of the stuff that could happen. Yay! Uh, all right. So the eruption would would contain dangerous particles and gases like carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, hydrochloric acid, and hydrofluoric acid. These are not great things for us to come into contact with. Yeah, you don't really want to breathe them. Yeah, if you breathe in uh, the particles, then you can have a lot of symptoms that are very similar to that of the common cold if it's a short-term exposure. So we're talking coughing, sneezing, you know, runny nose, um, possibly developing into bronchitis. If you have long-term exposure, it can get much worse. You can actually get damage to your lungs. It can tear up the tissue in your lungs. Um, also, there are a lot of people who talk about how if ash gets... Uh, combined with, say, uh, fluid, it could essentially turn your lungs into concrete, which is very lovely to think about. Mm -hmm. But uh, it also can get in your eyes. It can cause your eyes to itch. It can also cause corneal abrasion, so damaging your eyes. Um, You would obviously, if you were in an area where volcanic ash was falling, you would want a gas mask and goggles. I mean, you would want to be able to have some sort of filter um, to filter out these particles and something protecting your eyes uh, in this this sort of environment. Uh, it also can contaminate water supplies. Accumulation can lead to structural damage. Uh, this stuff weighs more than, say, snow would. And 10 centimeters doesn't sound like a lot, but it's enough to collapse certain buildings' roofs. Sure. So that's a big issue. Also, um, it can short out electrical transformers and plunge entire areas into blackout status. So that would be a real problem. And and again, because we're talking about ash dispersing in a 500-mile area around the supervolcano at 10 centimeters or so, that's enough to affect a huge amount of the United States. Mm-hmm. Even on outlying areas like where we live, we would still get some ash and maybe enough for it to cause some serious problems. If nothing else, contaminating water supplies and making uh, it difficult to grow crops or raise livestock. Uh, so lots of effects there throughout the entire United States. Even if we were somehow lucky with the weather patterns to avoid most of the ash, you still have the issue of Entire areas of the country that were dedicated to food production would be unable to do that for an indeterminate amount of time. Uh, sure. And then, uh, again, the, the cooling effect of having those gases in the air would affect not just the United States, but potentially the whole world. Yeah, we're talking global impact with this kind of level of eruption. So that cooling effect could be, as according to the BBC, up to 10 degrees. And since it is the BBC... I'm guessing they're talking Celsius because it's the BBC. Why would they speak in Fahrenheit? Um, so that kind of decrease could affect global food production, including things like stopping the monsoon season, which could lead to vast areas of, of, of food just not growing and lead to starvation. So we're talking about uh, global devastation. I mean, in, in different ways. Like, obviously, the areas around the volcano would be physically devastated. And then other areas would be affected in a more long-term fashion. Now, granted, this climate change would be temporary, particularly in the in the grand scheme of things. But we're talking still a period of like a decade. Mm-hmm. And 10 years, while short on a geological scale, that's a long time to go without being able to grow food effectively. 
So it could lead to really big problems. And that leads us again to the question, should we worry about this? And really the answer is is not really. The, Still no. The odds yeah. of it ha- actually happening are so low that there are other things that we need to worry about first. Um, it does mean that, you know, being aware of it tells us that eventually it will happen. So we have to have some sort of plan in place. But it's not like we have a sense of urgency of, guys, we need to figure out our super volcano plan like <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like like we said at the top of the show, the, the odds of something like this happening in any given year are only one in 700,000. And and I know that that even to some people might say, well, wow, that's still like those odds. I don't like those at all. But that's probably because as human beings, we're really bad at conceptualizing these kind of odds, right? I mean, it's it, we're notoriously terrible about it to the point where... That's we, why people go to casinos. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, why, it's why people, you know, ignore statistics about how likely they are to get in a car accident versus an airplane accident. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's we're bad at it because it, it's difficult for us to think in those terms. And when I say we, I mean me too. I'm the oh, same sure. way. I, sure. I I fall into the same traps as everybody else. Now, anything interesting sounds more dangerous to yeah. us, essentially. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the most interesting man in the world is pop, probably the most dangerous one too. I mean, hmm. I haven't asked him. I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> but uh yeah, so the, there are definitely reasons why we need to think about it and we need to plan for things. And, and really, we just need to make a better world in general and for multiple reasons. But one of them is because it would help us in the in the case of a super volcanic eruption. Uh, in fact, the folks at Yellowstone say that it's far more likely that we'll see small eruptions, ones that would not not even raise a blip on on anything beyond the regional scale. And even for regional, it might just mean that certain parts of the park are closed off due to lava flow and that this will uh, probably happen over the course of several hundred years where it starts to, you know, it relieves bits of pressure and that the pressure does not continuously build up to super eruption levels. If that were to happen, it would be preceded by earthquakes, likely for weeks or maybe even months before any kind of other event. So we would have lots of warning signs before there was ever any kind of super volcanic eruption. Uh, and once those warning signs happen, then it would become really important for us to decide what happens next. Because, I mean, even if you, if you discount the global impact, which really shouldn't do, but even if, if as Americans, we say, look, we're just really concerned about what's going to happen to us right now. We'll have to worry about the rest of the world later. This would be a, obviously a huge blow to national security, right? I mean, the United States would effectively not be the U.S. anymore in the wake of something like this if it were to have the uh, the far-reaching consequences that we've talked about. So if we were to see those kind of early warning signs, we would have some very serious conversations very, very quickly. But again – the likelihood of it happening is so low that, you know, it's – I feel pretty comfortable saying it's not going to happen within my lifetime or at least the odds are astronomical that it would happen within my lifetime. So that's your problem, guys. Who's, yeah, the, who's sorry, the old guy now? Future <laughs> generations. <laughs> and we keep on joking about how old I am. I'm going to be dead before I have to worry about this. So <laughs> You're the one who makes all the jokes about that. No, I, no. I, I, make, I make some of them. Yeah. I mean, I've done it like twice. <laughs> Come on. 
Uh-huh. See? You see how it's all coming out now? See, I, it's a defense mechanism, people. If I make the jokes, then it heads them off at the pass. How often do you dream of us being thrown into a volcano? By us, I mean the younger generations. Do, do daydreams count? Because it would make the number higher. Um, all right. So uh, it also depends on how long I'm waiting for my tacos. <laughs> There's a lot of imaginary throwing people into volcanoes when I'm waiting in line for tacos. That's fair. All right. So, yeah, I mean, come on. It's, that's hanger right there. I can't be, I can't be held responsible for my daydreams. Uh, but this was actually really interesting to look into. It was yeah. one of those things I learned a lot looking into this. And, and after having seen that, that mini series where I was like, well, that's, Absolutely terrifying. How how realistic is this? And looking into it and thinking, all right, it's not realistic in the sense of it's not likely to happen. But the actual depiction of events was pretty uh, interesting and I think fairly accurate. I mean, obviously, we didn't even cover how the particulates in the atmosphere would mean that we would see no no flights. Like all flights would be grounded across Mm. all of North America. Wow. And probably – other areas around North America, but definitely all of North America, no flights would be going in or out. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty phenomenal when you think about it. But again, not likely to happen. If you want to hear about other things that aren't likely to happen, you should write us and tell us, uh, or you just have an idea for a future episode. There's something that you've always wanted to learn more about and we wonder what it's going to be like in the future. Send us a message. We love hearing from you guys. The email address is fwthinking at HowStuffWorks.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google Plus. At Twitter and Google Plus, we are FW Thinking. At Facebook, just search FW Thinking in the little search bar. We'll pop right up. Leave us a message there and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.
Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love & Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love & Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.